title of my message today is uh, second part in a series called Victorious Christian Living. It is, this is a matter of experiential life and death. This is a matter of experiential life and death. I switched titles from my bulletin as I often do. This is a matter of experiential life and death. And again, this is the second part in about probably a five-part series in the, the chapter 8 of Romans. Our first part in the series from last week um, was part one. Pull it on up here. It's coming. Was hurdles to victory? How we read Romans 8 matters. And I encourage you to go back if, you, if you're kind of uh, new, new today and you missed last week. Uh, go back and listen to that message if you get a chance. It's got a lot of... Uh, uh, helpful uh, walking through the early parts of Romans 8 that's going to give you a context for what we're reading today. But we are going to do a little bit of a recap because today we're focused on uh, part two in the series. This is a matter of experiential life and death. And then next week we're going to be doing a, a, a very exhaustive topical study in walking in the Spirit. We're going to look at literally every New Testament reference for walking in the Spirit. I, I wanted to do it this week but I, I bumped it a week, and there's good reason for it. But every reference in the New Testament talks about walking in the Spirit, abiding in the Spirit, living by the Spirit. We're going to be looking at next week. And so be sure to, to stick around for this series, because this is about victorious Christian living. About living victoriously in Jesus Christ. And today we're in Romans 8, 1 through 13. This is a matter of experiential life and death. Take a look at verse 1 in Romans 8. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, we looked at this verse last week, and we spent a lot of time on it. In fact, we only spent time on the first two verses in Romans last week. And in speaking with many of you since last Sunday... Um, I could have been clearer, and I want to be, I want to be very clear here this morning. Um, I, I spoke with a number of people, uh, some of whom uh, maybe had some disagreements with some of the things that may have been said, others of whom were nodding their heads, but then as they explained it back to me, I said, wait a minute, and I, I was kind of clarifying myself. So let this be a final clarification of Romans 8.1 as we move forward, and I think as we understand this, I, uh, this conception of no condemnation in Romans 8.1, I think we're going to see it play out throughout the rest of the study here today. So, let's focus in. What is no condemnation? In Greek, it's the word katekrima in Romans 8.1. And what does this word mean? To be clear, katekrima simply means penalty or judgment. That's what the word means. So when Paul says there is no katakrima in Romans 8.1, we should ask the question, what penalty is being avoided? Now many think the penalty avoided in Romans 8.1 is hell. But katakrima cannot be eternal hellfire condemnation. If it were, then we would be forced to add the following as conditions to justification. Number one, that we not walk according to the flesh. Because it says that in Romans 8.1. And number two, that we walk according to the Spirit. I'm not prepared to make those as additional conditions to justification by faith. And far too often, 
the commentaries and the scholars and the pastors who teach on Romans 8.1 ignore this point. And they cannot. Because Paul is listing three conditions upon which there is no katakrima. There's no penalty. There's no judgment. It can't be hellfire. Now, having made this clear, I want to clarify my own position. Given the fact that Paul has just been discussing his incessant battle with sin in chapter 7, and he's going to soon go on to describe how to have victory over sin in chapter 8, it seems plain that the judgment, the katakrima, Paul is describing is his slavery and his bondage to sin. His. Now, of course, in one sense, all humans inherit this katakrima from Adam. So in one sense, this is a positional katakrima. However, in Romans 8.1, Paul isn't discussing our positional status as sinners in Adam. He's discussing the experiential effects of his katakrima, his judgment. Paul's inability to remedy his katakrima produced in him all manners of self-loathing and hatred. And I want to be clear on this because some, I, I probably uh, misspoke at least once in that message. And I want to be very clear. The self-loathing and the hatred are byproducts of Paul's katakrima. The self-loathing and the hatred are byproducts, they are effects of him being enslaved to sin. And I might have I might have gave the impression that the byproduct was the katakrima, and I want to make that clear. The katakrima is slavery to sin, Paul's, the effects of which are self-loathing and hatred, etc. And now finally, but Paul has found an answer to the damaging effects of his judgment, his katakrima of slavery to sin. And in Romans 8.1, Paul declares there is no katakrima for Christians who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Victory, and not katakrima, can be had by Christians who heed, singular, Romans 8.1-13. And conditions of victory... The conditions of victory in Romans 8.1 make it clear that that victory is in heaven. No, the victory to be won in Romans 8 is victory over sin in the here and now. It is about freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from being enslaved to it. Freedom from all the self-loathing and all the self-hatred that come from this katakrima. And Paul says, I can rise above this. This enslavement and this self-hatred that comes with it as I do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. It's about freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from being enslaved to it. And so, Paul continues in verse 2. Notice what he says in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me Free from the law of sin and death. Him free. And as we follow Him, it will make us free. And notice that verse 2 begins with the word for. 
that means that verse 2 is essentially supporting the point in verse 1. In verse 2, we see that the law, or the principle, if you will, the principle of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has given Paul freedom from the law of sin and death. Now here again, some assume that the freedom from sin and death pertains to eternal death. They have this knee-jerk reaction. Oh, that means eternal death. It's not the case. A simple look back at Romans 7.23 and 7.25 revealed just the opposite in which Paul uses the exact same terminology. Notice what he says. He says in Romans 7, I see another law in my bodily members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me in captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And again in 7.25, So then with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. What is the law of sin? What is the law of sin and death that Paul has been set free from in Romans 8.2? It is freedom from enslavement to sin. That's what it is. It's plain as day. Experiential in 7.23. It's experiential in 7.25. It's experiential in Romans 8.2. He's been set free from enslavement to sin. Now, of course it is also true that Paul, by his faith in Christ, has been eternally saved. Of course it's true that Paul, by his faith in Christ, will never be eternally condemned. But that's not what he's talking about in Romans 8, 1 and 2. What is the law of sin and death in Romans 8, 2? It is Paul's inherent fleshly inclination to return to the old way of sin. To be enslaved to the law of sin and death is to be beholden to sin. And conversely, To be free from the law of sin and death is to be able to cast sin aside and live righteously by the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now, on on what grounds is Paul free? How could he possess this experiential freedom? Who gave it to him? It's sourced in Jesus Christ. Notice what it says in verse 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. The law could not provide freedom for Paul. And he desperately wanted it. The law of God was perfect. But when humans try to keep it, they fall short because they are fallen. And Paul says, hey, the law couldn't do it. Because it was weakened by my flesh. It couldn't bring me freedom. But where the law failed, God entered in victoriously. And while mankind were dead in their sins, the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of man of sinful flesh. On account of sin, Jesus came. And He condemned sin in the flesh. Beautiful, beautiful picture. 
of the victory that Christ has won. Friends, Jesus Christ came on account of sin. He came because you and I are sinners. He came because not only were we awaiting eternal death, but we were enslaved every hour of every day. Enslaved to sin. Enslaved to wickedness. Deadness. And Jesus came because of that. He came on account of sin to condemn it, to cast it aside, to put it to death. Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior? You are a sinner and you need the righteousness of Christ to make you whole. Our One of our banners in yellow says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the truth of the Bible. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ, do it right now. Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Saved you from sin and death. And you will be eternally with the Lord. And not only that, but there's other reasons that Jesus, there's other things that Jesus is now offering to you. Know this for sure. Jesus didn't merely come that that you would have eternal life with Him in the life hereafter. No, it says there's another reason Jesus came. Look at verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now this is a, this is a fantastic statement. Um, a, a, an amazing verse. Jesus died and rose again. He came that we might have the capacity in this life to live righteously. Paul says Jesus came that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The word, the word for righteous requirement is actually one word in Greek. It is dikaioma in Greek. And it means, it means righteous action, righteous deed, righteous act. We see this word used earlier in Romans chapter 5. Let's go ahead and pull it up here. Dikaioma is used again in Romans 5. And this is what it says in Romans 5, 18. Through one man, this is Jesus, Dikaioma, his righteous act, the free gift of eternal life came to all men, resulting in justification of life. So we see here that that Dikaioma is a righteous act. It's an action. It's a good deed. It's a way of righteousness. It's an act of righteousness. Interestingly, uh, even though the word means that, and you, you, you read, you, you take out the best Greek-English dictionary in the world, the initials of which are B-A-G-D, Bauer, oh, oh man, Danker and Gingrich, I forget, all the, I forget all the names of the authors, anyway, B-A-G-D, best Greek-English lexicon in the world. They say unequivocally, dikaioma means righteous act. 
righteous deed, righteous action. It's interesting that two verses earlier in Romans 5, the translators have a lot of trouble with this word. And the reason they have a lot of trouble with this word is because of their theological presuppositions. Take a look at Romans 5.16. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. Hey, cut the cream. I've heard that before. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in a righteous act. Wait a minute. No. Justification. Well, that's odd. Every major modern Bible translation translates the end of Romans 5.16 as justification. A status of being justified. Even though the word there is dikaioma in Greek, which means clearly a righteous act or a righteous deed or a righteous action. Isn't that odd? You think, why would that be? Why would they do that? Why would the translators take a word which means one thing and change it to mean something completely different? And by the way, the word justification there in in Greek, there are plenty of words Paul uses for the word justification. He doesn't use it here. Dikaioma never means justification anywhere else in the New Testament. Ever. And so you're thinking, wait, well then why, why do the translators do that? It's a knee-jerk reaction to their theological presuppositions that the word condemnation, katakrima, is eternal hellfire. Let me say that again. It's a theological presupposition in their minds that the word katakrima, which we just looked at in Romans 8.1, means eternal hellfire. They immediately think, oh, it means eternal condemnation. No. It doesn't mean that. And the very fact that Paul uses dikaioma at the end of chapter 5, verse 16, makes it clear that eternal condemnation is not the opposite of righteous deed. Or action. Ah, but if katakrima is slavery to sin, then dikaioma, righteous action, then we have an opposite, don't we? Then we have an antithesis. Then we have something that makes sense not only theologically, but lexically. By the word themselves. Now I'm getting heady. <laughs> and I'm spinning, by the way, because I'm on some, uh, some cold medicine. So I, I'm already spinning in my head, and I'm, already, I'm getting heady, you know. But do you see what's happening here? This is no small problem. And I didn't bring it out entirely enough in Romans 5 uh, when I preached on it, quite frankly, because I didn't think I had to. But when I got to Romans 8, I saw just the. the, the the dire problem here. Dikaioma in Greek means righteous action. Let's, let's bring up that, that word there. Next Write that down. That's what it means. It doesn't mean justification. It never means that. You can't, you can't find any Greek dictionary that will tell you it means justification. And yet, 
All of our major Bible translations translate it that. Why? Because they instinctively think katakrima means eternal condemnation. And it doesn't. It means slavery to sin. Does that make sense? All right. And if it doesn't, please talk to me afterwards. I would love to explain this to you and explain the importance of this. This changes a lot if you read Romans 8 as eternal condemnation. And this is good evidence for why it is not. Now, wait a minute. We're a grace church, right? We're, uh, we emphasize the grace of Christ. All you need is to believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. doesn't matter how you live. doesn't matter what you do. Sin all you want. You'll still be saved. Once saved, always saved. Romans 5.16 poses a problem for us, doesn't it? You bet it does. And I don't give you this interpretation of Romans 5.16 because it, it cherry-coats my theology. In fact, in some sense, it, it, it causes me to, to, to go, wait a minute, what's Paul saying here? He's saying... Judgment came, resulting in slavery to sin. But when Jesus came, He brought eternal life, resulting in righteousness. Paul's saying, you be righteous. That's why Jesus came. You don't go on living fleshly. Jesus came that you might do dikaioma, righteous action, righteous deed. He doesn't want you to abuse His grace. He doesn't want you to, to, to take what He's given to you eternally and then just live like the devil. He's saying, no. The reason you've been given eternal life is for righteous action. Now act like it. Paul is no fan of those who abuse the grace of Christ. He says plainly, that one of the foremost purposes that Jesus came is so that you might be holy. And when we're not holy, we're denigrating the death of Christ. Jesus sacrificed Himself for us, not merely to save us in the next life, but also to redeem us in this one. And Paul is suggesting here that Jesus died and rose again, that you and I might be morally righteous. Are you righteous? Are you righteous? Do you want to be? Let's find out how. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit... For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Here in verse 5, we find the first of many keys to how to live righteously and gain victory over sin. Paul asks the question, what do you think about? What do you dwell on? What do you set your mind on? What do you think about when you wake up? Do you wake up and think... Oh, got to go to work today. I hate work. Oh, kids got up early again. Why can't they sleep in? I just want to sleep. 
Is that your morning? Is that how you start your morning? Is that how you is that how your mind dwells? As you're driving to work, what do you think about? When you're with your kids, what do you think about? When you're with your in-laws, what do you think about? When you walk into church, what do you think about? When you're alone late at night, what do you think about? Paul says, those who live according to the flesh, they're setting their minds on things of the flesh. They're dwelling on, repeatedly, things that are negative, are evil, are discouraging, are depressing. Bring them down. What does your mind dwell on? We talk about walking in the Spirit next week exhaustively. This is one of the first keys. What is your mind dwelling on? Train your mind. Romans 12. Paul's going to say, be transformed. Be personally transformed by the renewing of your mind. Elsewhere in the Corinthians, he says, you have the mind of Christ. Use it. Whatever is good, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, think about those things. Train your mind differently. When the kids wake up early on Saturday morning, laugh it off. Wake up and say, an extra hour to play with my child. When you're going to work and you you hate your work, really, you're going to hate your work for the rest of your life? Is that what you're going to do? Just hate it every morning? Really? Let your work be an opportunity every day to be a representative of Jesus Christ. Embrace it. Embrace the suffering of it. And look differently at it. In, um, in Lloyd and uh, Elias' study, in you know, The Contagious Christian, I, I got to sneak in for a little bit this morning. I didn't get all of it, but um, the, whole, the whole topic this morning, think differently about the situations that present themselves to you. Think differently about them. When you have an opportunity to share Christ, man, do it. Don't just squander those opportunities. Look and think differently when someone walks up to you and starts a conversation. When you have an opportunity with a neighbor, you're a new creation. You've been given the mind of Christ. Why regress to the carnal mind, the old mind? Paul reminds us, that's your former self. Look what he says in verse 7 and 8. He says, because the carnal mind is enmity, it's hostile against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul's using some key words here that let us know he's moving out of the realm of experience and moving into the realm of position. He's saying, the carnal mind and in the flesh. He's saying, look, those who are unbelievers, those who are still stuck in the old way, if you will, they're living in hostility to God. They have a carnal mind. They don't have a regenerate mind. 
It's not sub- that mind is not subject to the law of God. It can't be. Those who are in the flesh, they can't even please God. Those who are of that position, who do not know the Lord, they're stuck in a carnal mind, a carnal way of thinking, a carnal way of, of living, and they don't have the renewal by the Spirit to give them life, to allow them to please God. Paul says, why would you regress to that? He goes on in verse 9 and 10. He says, but you, you are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. You are not in the flesh. You may walk fleshly from time to time. You may live according to the flesh from time to time. But positionally, you are not in the flesh. You are positionally in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And how do we receive the Holy Spirit? When we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit simultaneously indwells our very person, regenerating us and making us a child of God forever. That's how we receive the Holy Spirit. He comes upon us at the moment of faith in Jesus Christ, making us new in Christ. And Paul goes on to say in verse 10, And if Jesus is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. That is to say, the Spirit, this is important, the Spirit is able to not only indwell us because of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, but probably more to Paul's point, because our new righteousness in, because of our new righteousness in Christ, the Spirit is able to lift us up to our full potential of life and peace, which he's been describing in Romans 8. And we'll see this shortly in, in verse 11 as well. But first, what about the death there? If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Notice he says, if Christ is in you, the body is dead. Now that means that for Christians, for me, and for you, our bodies are dead. In what sense does he mean there? Well, let's hope he doesn't mean physical death. Should have got a bigger laugh. If he, if he meant physical death, that would pose a problem, wouldn't it? So certainly he doesn't mean that our, our bodies are physically dead. No, of course Paul means that our bodies, our flesh is spiritually deadened. While our spirit has been reborn, it is still housed in an old fleshly body that wants nothing more than to gratify its sinful desires. The death of the body in verse 10 is a this-worldly kind of death. Lending greater likelihood that the life of the spirit in the very next clause is a very this-worldly kind of life that He offers to us. And in fact, that's exactly where Paul goes in verse 11. Notice what he says here. This is one of the most critical verses in all of Romans 8. He says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. What life? will be given to our mortal bodies. What is he talking about there? 
my knee-jerk reaction says, well, that means resurrection, right? That means one day my body will be raised because of Christ who was risen. It's possible. It's possible. But does it fit the context in Romans 8? Does it fit Paul's use of life and death all the way up to verse 11 and how he's going to use it after verse 11? To understand what kind of life Paul is talking about here in verse 11, let's look back one final time at Paul's use of the words life and death in Romans 8. Let's look at some instances of life first. And I want you to ask, answer me this question. Is this experiential life now or future life in heaven? Take a look. Those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Is the live there, is that experiential life or is that future life in heaven? Experiential life, right. Circle that. Next one. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now, is that experiential life now or is that future life in heaven? Experiential, of course it is. Circle that. Let's try some with death. Let's, let's flip it around here. Let's go to death. How about experiential death now or future death in heaven? Answer me this. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Is that experiential death now or future death in hell? Experiential death now, isn't it? Let's go one verse after verse 11 in Romans. Let's go to this one. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, is that, this is a hard one. Is that experiential death now or future death in hell? experiential death now. Why? He's talking to brothers. He says, therefore, Christians, Christians, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. What does he mean? Does he mean go to hell? Nope. He means you will have an experience of death in yourself. And we know what that's like. All we got to do is read Romans 7. That was Paul's experience of death in himself trying to do what he wanted to do and he could not do it, and sin dwelling in him, and he cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? Experiential. Let's go back to life for a second. Let's flip around and look at the last part of verse 13. But if, if, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Is that experiential life now or is that future life in heaven? Experiential life now. That's funny. You probably circled all the experientials, didn't you? But in Romans 8.11, that means future resurrection. That means... Really? That's funny, because that would be the first time Paul used it in that way, in all of Romans 8. Is it that odd to think that the Holy Spirit of God who dwells in me is powerful enough to give life now to even my mortal body. That He could use this house of flesh which every day just wants to gratify itself. And use this vessel for purposes of life. 
couldn't pull that down there. When it says in verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you now, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you now. Is it not clear, based on Paul's repeated use of life and death in Romans 8, that Paul is talking about an experience of life now? What we are finding in this exercise is that every time Paul mentions the words life or live or die or dead or death with respect to the human person in Romans 8, he means life and death right now. Are you a dead person now? Or are you a living person right now? It is always given in an experiential sense. He's not talking about heaven and hell here. He's talking about an experience of life in the here and now that if lived by the Spirit will give life even to your flesh, even to your mortal body that so often rages against our very Spirit, the very Spirit of God who lives in us. And he finishes in verse 12 on the same theme. On the same theme. Therefore, Christians, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. We're indebted not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice the therefore in verse 12. The therefore is supporting evidence for what he's just said in verse 11. And so, he's not saying in verse 11 that you'll be resurrected one day and therefore the Spirit will give you life right now. No. He's saying the Spirit of God can give you life right now. How? Because He is the same Spirit who had the power to raise Jesus from the dead. The same God who had that power by the Spirit to lift up Jesus Christ from the dead. He dwells in you and He can give your flesh life. He can make your body, which was born into this life, to do wickedness and inclined to wickedness and to gratify itself and to be utterly consumed with selfishness. And He can take this vessel and use it for life. And infuse it with life. As new creations in Christ... There's no more katakrima. There's no more condemnation. There's no more slavery to sin. Or in this new way of saying it in verse 12, we're not debtors to the flesh anymore to live according to it. If you live that way, you're going to die. I gave some, some closing comments I wanted to read at the bottom. I didn't put it on the slide. It says, God wants you to experience His life. True life. True life. Spirit life. Abundant life. Today. But we can choose to forgo this amazing life opportunity. And those Christians who do forgo it 
will experience death. But those who, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, will experience life. Everybody always wants... uh, Everybody always talks about amazing life opportunities. Oh, I had an amazing opportunity, life opportunity. I got to go to, to Europe on vacation. Oh, I had an amazing life opportunity. I was able to, to, to go and, and to Washington, D.C. and to see the sights. And what an amazing life opportunity. This is an amazing life opportunity. We look at those life opportunities, the vacations and good experiences we've had. And, oh, wow, that's when I was really living. Paul says, this is when you're really living. you get rid of the flesh and you put it to death you say no to the desires of the flesh and you live by the spirit and you dwell in the things of the spirit you will live you will live this is about victorious Christian living and Romans 8 is a matter of experiential life and death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to live. We want to live. We know we're going to live eternally because of Jesus Christ, our Savior. But we don't want to wait. I don't want to wait, Lord. I want Your life now. We want to know what it's like to truly live now by Your Spirit. Help us, God, to experience life and not death. We know, Lord, there is no slavery to sin. There is no katakrima. For we who don't walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Help us to achieve that. Help us to achieve that victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.